2: Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
3: Sleepwalkers is a production of iHeartRadio and Unusual Productions.
4: I was on a patrol up in the mountains of Afghanistan and I was doing a reconnaissance patrol with a very small ranger team. And I saw someone approaching us, a young man, um, maybe early
3: 20s. That's Paul Charre, a former army ranger, an elite special operative in the U.S. military.
4: There were sort of a couple possibilities that came into my mind. One was that um, he was a goat herder, just out you know, taking his goats out to eat some grass. Another was that he uh, might be like a, a woodcutter that's protecting his property. And another one might be that he was someone who had seen us. There wasn't a lot of vegetation in the area, so we were pretty exposed. And he was coming to kill us. And those all seemed like very real possibilities.
3: Paul knew of similar situations where enemy fighters pretended to be civilians, concealing their weapons until a last-minute ambush.
4: I had a fairly high degree of confidence that, you know, if we got into a gunfight, we could outmatch him or three of us. But if he surprised us, he might've easily killed one of us in the process first. So I wanted to maneuver to a position where I could uh, see him and I found him, he was sitting on the edge of a cliff and looking out over this wide valley and he had his back to me. And I settled into a position where I could watch him very closely through my sniper rifle. It was close enough that the wind carried his voice towards me and I could hear him talking. That alarmed me because I couldn't see who he was talking to.
3: Paul didn't speak the local Afghan languages, Dari or Pashto, so he couldn't understand what the man was saying.
4: I thought he might have had a radio and he could be reporting back to maybe a group of fighters nearby. I was weighing that possibility versus maybe he's just you know, talking to himself or talking to his goats or something. And then eventually I heard him start singing. And it struck me that if he was singing, you know, singing out over the radio to someone in our position, it seemed like a very strange thing for a fighter to be doing. And the most likely explanation was he was just an innocent goat herder, um, had no idea that we were there, and he was singing to himself just to pass the time.
3: And so Paul lowered his sniper rifle and he left. No provocation, no harm done to either side.
4: But that incident really stuck with me because there was a period of time where I didn't know whether he was, you know, an innocent person or a fighter who might have been trying to kill us. Um, And the actions I would take were very different in those two worlds. And now I look back when I think about autonomous weapons and I think, what would a machine do? How could a machine understand the context that I did? and sort of realize it doesn't make sense that a person might be singing in a tactical way. That's strange. You know, he's probably just an innocent person. Would a machine be able to do that?
3: It's a profound question Paul poses. What happens when something like a predator drone has as much autonomy as a self-driving car? And can an AI system ever understand context, which can sometimes mean the difference between life and death? In this episode, we'll examine AI on the battlefield and the future of technology driven warfare. I'm Oz Veloshin, and this is Sleepwalkers. So, Kara, last episode we talked about the future of work, and we focused on one big question, which was what can AI not do? And what Paul is talking about, identifying whether someone's a shepherd or an insurgent, identifying targets on the battlefield, seems to be one of those things.
5: Sure. But on the other hand, it's important for us to ask, what is AI good at? You know, it's good at making predictions based on data about what might happen next. It's good at seeing patterns. So it makes me think, you know, that with enough training data about battlefield interactions, it could get just as good or better, than humans at this task.
3: Yeah, and of course, we don't have the counterfactual to pull story. Sadly, there's probably many stories where the army ranger doesn't wait to hear the shepherd singing before deciding what to do and just pulls the trigger. And equally, there's probably many sad cases where it does turn out to be an insurgent and an ambush happens to the soldiers. So just from that story, it's not necessarily clear to me that humans are always or will always be better than algorithms at identifying targets.
5: You know, I do think it raises an important question— We are increasingly comfortable outsourcing many parts of our lives to technology. You know, who are we gonna fall in love with? How are we gonna get to our cousin's house? You know, that's decision-making, though. In the world of war, we can also build tools to do things that people don't wanna do. A lot of people have heard about Boston Dynamics. They have this extremely terrifying video of this four-legged robo-dog, aptly named Spot, you know, that can run across bumpy ground. It can go into places that aren't safe for human beings, you know? And they've just announced this model with a claw on the back of it that can open doors.
3: There are so many potential uses for this, from assisting military raids to sending spots into buildings that are unsafe for humans.
5: Yeah, like a a whole pack of spots can actually pull a truck. There's a video of it online. Look it up. It's frightening.
3: Teamwork is the dream work.
5: (laughs) Exactly. But no, like, what's going to happen when that comes to the world of war, and we have packs of robo-dogs. Well,
3: who knows, right? The future is unclear. And that's really the question of this episode. How will AI and robotics change the battlefield? And how good of an insurance policy is it to keep a human in the loop, to have somebody, a person, controlling the pack of spots? We heard from Paul Shari at the beginning. He's now the director of technology and national security at a bipartisan think tank called the Center for a New American Security. He's recently written a book called Army of None, Autonomous Weapons and the Future of War.
4: We're moving to a world where uh, machines may be making some of the most important decisions on the battlefield about who lives and dies.
3: And as Paul's experience in Afghanistan taught him, even elite military training isn't always enough to tell who is and isn't likely to be a threat. So, understandably, there's a great worry in handing over target identification to a computer especially as the stakes are life and death. And as Paul tells us, autonomous weapons are already being produced and sold around the world.
4: The best example today of a fully autonomous weapon is a drone built by Israel called the Harpy drone. And it's been sold to a number of countries, um, Turkey, India, China, South Korea. It's an anti-radar weapon that is flying a search pattern in the sky looking for enemy radars. And when it finds one, it can then attack the radar without any further human permission. And that crosses the line to an autonomous weapon. that's able to go find targets and then attack them all by itself.
3: These are not the autonomous killer robots of science fiction, setting their own goals and killing at will. We still send them into battle and tell them what to look for, but we no longer control exactly what they do when they get there.
4: So by analogy, you might think about a self-driving car. Um, there are varying degrees of how much a car could be self-driving. You could have some, like the Tesla Autopilot today, where there's a steering wheel, and the human could intervene and grab control of the vehicle. Um, you might have some, like, Google self-driving car that has no steering wheel, and the person is just merely a passenger. But even in a totally self-driving car, the human is still choosing the destination. You're not getting in your car and just saying, car, you know, take me where you want to go. So at some level, humans are always involved. And that's going to be the case in warfare. Um, The question is, you know, when do we cross a threshold where the humans have transferred control of some important and meaningful decisions to machines? And then what are the legal or ethical implications of that?
3: It is a hugely important question. In the aftermath of the Second World War, 196 countries signed up to the Geneva Convention, setting standards for behavior in battle. But how do we enforce those standards if the combatants are machines, not people? Beyond having a human in the loop, one important piece of the puzzle is a healthy testing and review process, a clear understanding of how a weapon works and the decisions it will make. But according to Richard Danzig, a former Secretary of the Navy, that's easier said than
6: done. One of the things that concerns me is that the technologies are frequently highly classified. So if for self-driving cars, we typically require that there be millions of miles driven, and we insist that external regulators review them for safety. In the military context, we don't have millions of miles of experience before combat. And we don't typically have any kind of third party review that says, wait a minute, here are the risks associated with this system spinning out of control We ought to be using teams to say, hey, what could go wrong if an adversary wants to attack these and subvert them or when they interact with other systems? This kind of wargaming is valuable, but
3: the best laid plans and standards can crumble in the face of existential threats, real or perceived. You only need to think about Hiroshima and Nagasaki to understand how quickly restraint can give way to the desire for victory. Here's Paul again.
4: As countries feel that their national survival might be at stake, they're going to be willing to take more risk, put out more experimental weapons. The use of poison gas in World War I is, I think, a terrible example of this happening in practice. Germany was in a panic to find some kind of wonder weapon that might break that stalemate. So a desire to get an upper hand will clearly, historically we've seen, lead militaries to take risks and deploy more experimental technology.
3: This is one of the scariest things about war to me, Kara. particularly war involving new technology, the potential for misunderstanding and unintended consequences. Paul mentions the almost accidental use of poison gas in World War I, and then there was a Cuban Missile Crisis, where we almost stumbled into a nuclear war.
5: And all this potential for misunderstanding is compounded exponentially in the world of AI. Because it's not just humans who are trying to read each other and make decisions, it's algorithms sort of loose in the wild, interacting with one another. The Guardian actually had a great story about this called Franken-Algorithms, the Deadly Consequences of Unpredictable Code. And the article makes the point that the stock market flash crash of 2010 was actually caused by algorithms interacting with one another. You know, it's hard not to think that this could happen in the wild, so to speak.
3: It's a scary thought, and it's made even scarier because there's just so much potential all around for misunderstanding. And that's something Richard Danzig
6: is seriously concerned about. When we talk about sending a ship on a mission, policymakers, by and large, understand what that means and how others will perceive it if the ship comes into their waters. Whereas when we start talking about artificial intelligence, policymakers, if there are five people in a room, may readily envision five different things.
3: We need the people making decisions to understand both the situations they're dealing with and also how the tools they're using actually work. And that's not easy when it comes to AI. Part of the issue is the so-called black box problem. Currently, we understand the principles of how a neural network uses probabilities to reach a conclusion, but we can't interrogate the millions of micro decisions it makes along the way. This is a huge barrier to understanding weapon systems powered by AI. I wanted to know how the researchers developing new military technology think about the black box problem. So I spoke with Arthi Prabhakar, the former head of DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. And Arthi shared a story about how the black box problem plays out.
7: Many years ago now, there was a wonderful paper from Stanford that showed a machine system that could label images. This was a girl blowing out the candles on her birthday cake, or a construction worker doing something. So fairly complex analysis of what was going on in this picture, and it would get one right, and it would get ten right, and it would get a hundred right. And then there was a picture that every human being would say that's a baby holding an electric toothbrush, but the machine said it's a small boy holding a baseball bat. And, and, you know, you just look at it and you think, what? What What? What were you, what were you thinking? And I, this, I think it's a great illustration of the black box nature of these learning systems because they've been trained on all this volume of data. But when you look inside to say, well, what went wrong there? You know, you just see a bunch of nodes with weights from being trained. And so they're really opaque.
3: Arthi's example is kind of cute.
5: Yeah, it's cute.
3: <laughs> but think about it for a moment. The difference between a baby holding an electric toothbrush and a small boy holding a baseball bat could also be, in Afghanistan, the difference between Paul Shepard and a militant. In other words, the difference between life and death.
5: Yeah, and it's a bit daunting that we are becoming more reliant on something that we continue not to understand fully, don't you think?
3: Absolutely, and Henry Kissinger actually wrote a piece on this for The Atlantic called How the Enlightenment Ends. Big stuff. For sure. Heady. Heady and, well, it's Kissinger, he (laughs) argued that because we're unable to interrogate the output of algorithms, as we rely on them more and more to classify the world around us, we may actually start to lose the ability to reason for ourselves.
5: It's not inevitable, though, that AI will always be opaque. The EU are actually working on this policy that decisions made by AI need to be explainable to people they affect.
3: That may be a policy that's easier said than done. Uh, Although... Uh, The so-called next wave of AI is all about explainable AI, and it's actually a major initiative right now at DARPA. Here's Arthi again.
7: Explainable AI has been part of starting an entire new field of inquiry in artificial intelligence to couple that kind of statistical power that machine learning systems have with systems that explain how they got the results that they got in order for us human users to be able to know Uh, when to trust those machine learning systems and when not to trust them. What Arthi
3: is describing would be a huge breakthrough in AI. Understanding how neural networks make their decisions would allow us to harness the power of the technology much more safely, and not just on the battlefield. When we come back, we look at how much of the technology we take for granted in our everyday lives actually originated in the military.
9: perfect home, sweet home.
3: So DARPA, the defense agency with an annual budget of $3.5 billion. Its motto is to cast a javelin into the infinite spaces of the future. What you may not know is how much of the technology we all use every day came right out of DARPA.
7: I think about this every time I use my smartphone because that's a beautiful, seamless integration of a whole host of technologies that were sparked many, many years ago by DARPA. So the chip in your cell phone that talks to the cell tower is based on a materials and electronics technology that was developed for communications and radar systems. The chip that knows when you've rotated your phone is MEMS technology that had huge early support from DARPA. But also, uh, Siri or other intelligent agents are based on the artificial intelligence research that was done.
3: But what fueled this wave of incredible innovation at DARPA? Well, actually, war.
7: DARPA is a very American concept. In 1957, the Soviet Union put the first artificial satellite on orbit. That was Sputnik. There was a lot of excitement because human beings had never done that before, but of course, also quite a a shock for the United States at the height of the Cold War. Sputnik was a reminder that in addition to working on the problems that you knew you had, you also needed to have people who came to work every day To think about those kinds of technological surprises. And so DARPA was started as a reaction to that technological surprise of Sputnik. Its mission for 60 years has been to create those kinds of technological surprises. And its history is one in which it's accomplished that mission. DARPA is known as the place that made the early stages of each revolution in artificial intelligence and, of course, most memorably for starting the ARPANET and writing the protocols that became the Internet that we have today.
3: Think about that. The technology that forms the architecture of our daily lives in the 21st century, the Internet, was created by a defense agency whose mission was to outthink the Soviet Union. And in some sense, all of the technologies we've looked at so far in Sleepwalkers are the outgrowth of DARPA's work. What really enabled this was DARPA's decision to allow their technology into the U.S. private sector and to let entrepreneurs build on top of it.
7: Absolutely, as vital was the, were the companies and the entrepreneurs and the investors who saw that you could turn those those raw research results into this seamless, beautiful product that we've now we all live with all the time.
3: Carrot, it's amazing to think just how much of Silicon Valley really stands on the shoulders of DARPA, but even outside of what we think of as the tech world, there's plenty of examples of military technology living with us. For example, microwaves, which were an accidental byproduct of radar technology. And then there's good old Roomba, which was originally developed as a minesweeping technology.
5: And is still a minesweeping technology in my house. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you know, there's this concept of dual-use technology, which we've talked about, a few times. It's the idea that technology developed for the military can have civilian applications and vice versa. We talked about this with blink identity and facial recognition. Do you remember last year the um Project Maven walkout?
3: Yeah, Google, right?
5: So that was a project for the Pentagon. Over 3000 employees protested that they didn't want to develop that technology.
3: So Google pulled the plug on the project. The problem is, though, that, you know, you can say you're developing, you know, AI and target recognition for the military, or you can say you're developing AI to recognize what's happening in images, but it's the same technology, and once it gets into the wild, anyone who wants can use it. And that's actually something that Arthur spoke about, uh, about innovation traveling from DARPA to the private sector.
5: Yeah, and now DARPA actually has this younger sibling called the Defense Innovation Unit, D-I-U-X whose job is actually to invest and incubate technologies from the private sector that could be helpful for defense. So this is basically the bridge from Silicon Valley to D.C., which is taking things from the consumer space and applying them for military use.
3: And one of these technologies is called Halo. They're basically headphones that electrify your brain in order to stimulate growth. <laughs> That's right. So I went to Connecticut to test them out with former Navy SEAL John Wilson.
10: I was a SEAL for 12 years. I've served in Iraq multiple times, Afghanistan. I went to Mogadishu and then South America. As you can imagine, drug warfare is still a really big issue. So we have military units down there to combat the cartels. We were gone 300 days out of the year training, and then we were deployed for months on end. So that's what we lived, breathed, day in and day out. We weren't going home at night. These
3: days, John is back with his family and he's especially interested in how new technology can help SEALs past and present. One such technology is the Halo headset, which DIUX invested in. The headset uses an electric current to prime the brain for so-called neuroplasticity. In other words, the ability to learn and learn quickly.
10: For us, I've recognized that when we do a pistol draw, that movement is a repetitive movement that we've done thousands and thousands and thousands of times over and over again. And what this does is it primes the brain to learn those repetitive movements faster. And Have you genuinely noticed the difference? 100%. When I first came across this, I got a bunch of seals together and we went out to the range. We neuroprimed and we started shooting. So we got the baseline, did this for a month, looked at our scores, and our scores were light years better. And light years, I mean milliseconds, right? But milliseconds on the battlefield equates to life or death.
3: I may be as far away from being a military person as anyone could be, but John has kindly agreed to lead me
10: through a Navy SEAL workout. So what we have here, it looks like a Beats headset, right? With some strange nodules. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what we have on the top, as mentioned, were these little nods. What those do are those are going to send a current into the, the cortex, your frontal cortex. Into my brain. Into your brain. Is that safe? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I'm going to bypass that question. Uh, it's safe. Turns
3: out it is safe. It's been tested by DARPA and others, so I had to put it on, and John agreed to help me use the headset to Neuroprime before putting me through my paces.
10: All right, let's 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 crank it up so you can... So eight's probably a, a good... I don't know if you can feel a difference there, but we got 20 minutes of Neuroprime feels like something pinching my head a bit. Yeah. It's not, it's not a comfortable feeling. Right. Yeah. Do you and, get used Imagine, to no, you never do. <laughs> but it's worth it, right? Like, what is that uncomfortable sensation? What's happening? Is that? That's electricity. Yep. Yep. So it's, uh, it's going into your brain right now, and it's getting your brain into a state of neuroplasticity. Hyperlearning, essentially, is what that state allows you to do, and it just allows you to learn faster and learn more information.
3: After a warm-up, which was, in fact, a lot more intense than my normal workout... Ah,
10: two... Three, come on uh, up, drive up, and hold. Uh, Tough, right? Still a warm-up, was it? yeah, still a warm-up.
3: It was time to take the headset off and start the real thing. Or so I thought.
8: Public, <laughs> private. <laughs> it's pretty really hard. It, keep coming.
2: <laughs> so you can do 20 reps. So, one. Two, oh, and my God. God. Well,
3: oh, God, aim off. Ah, three ah! This woman. must be what Hell Week's like. <laughs> worse. Worse. Nothing can be worse than this. Yeah,
10: insurance? Why do
3: you ask, John? <laughs> <laughs> well,
10: whatever do
3: you mean. Thankfully, the workout came to an end and without any injury. Though, to be honest, I couldn't tell if the neuropriming had worked for me. Because HALO enhances the brain's ability to learn, studies show best results when it's used over time. In other words, if I wore the headset before every workout, I might start to notice the difference in how quickly I performed. But somehow, I trusted John, talking about the draw time for his weapons. So, the battlefields of Afghanistan,
10: Iraq, Syria… It's my happy place, yeah. Who can understand that? It's my happy place because I'm around people that I know would do anything for me, that love me and I love them. For John, being on the battlefield wasn't the hardest part leaving it was. Transitioning is not an easy thing. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. When we transition, we do it by ourselves. We're trying to solve a complex problem, which we love to do. But normally when that takes place, you have your team around you and you're going to figure it out because you know you'll never let the person to the left and right of you down. When you're trying to do this by yourself, you have nobody to talk to, and it starts getting hard, and you go dark is what we call it. So we go into our shell, we, we kind of ostracize ourselves from society, and, and that's when bad stuff starts happening.
3: John recalls a recent narrow escape for one of his SEAL comrades.
10: He was a SEAL Team 6 guy and um, ended up going through a divorce. He had a newborn that he had to stay home and take care of. So he went to a really dark place. He just called me, and unbeknownst to me, he had just put his son to bed, and he was sitting in the car with a pistol. I didn't know that. I just uh, picked up the phone, asked him how he was doing, and he said he's doing okay, but he needs some help. I said, we got you, brother. That's all I said. And that was enough for him to put that gun away, go back inside and take care of that little guy. Just me saying, we got you.
3: That camaraderie saved John's friend's life. But returning veterans need something more than community. They need a purpose. A mission, and that can be hard to find in civilian life.
10: You don't know your fit, you don't know your role in the family and your your tribe, you don't know your role in society, and you're just trying to get by to put food on the table, and there's, there's a void there now. And according to John, that's where Halo comes in. Just because we're SEALs doesn't mean we all want to end up doing security work. There's a lot of people that want to maybe go into finance or be a lawyer. Halo allows us to succeed and accelerate at that process. So if it's people wanting to go back to school, Putting in a Halo headset on before you study. Uh, people maybe wanting to get a job that requires multiple languages, you can uh, throw on the Halo and pick up those languages at an accelerated pace. Do you think it's more powerful
3: as something to believe in? Like if I put this headset on, I can achieve my goals. Or do you think it's more powerful as a technological solution? Or is it somewhere in between those two things?
10: I think it's probably both, right? So our strength and conditioning coach in the SEAL teams, he had a bottle PE is what he wrote on it, which stood for placebo effect. It was just water. But guys would come over and say they're hurt, and he would just spray a little bit of this water on them, and they would, every single time, would walk away. I'm like, oh, I feel better. Thanks, coach. My point is, is the research there supports that this actually works, but who gives a shit, even if it didn't, because people are going to believe in themselves, and that's, part, that's 90% of the battle, in my opinion. If it takes a headset to get there, then great. But we know that this headset works, and it's going to help accelerate you achieving that goal.
3: We've talked about dual use in terms of military technology that enters the civilian world and vice versa. And Halo is just that, a consumer product that is also used by the armed forces. But it has a much more profound dual use. It can save soldiers' lives twice. The first time on the battlefield, where shaving milliseconds off reaction time can mean the difference between life and death. And the second time, when they return home. Halo can help them develop new skills, and perhaps even more importantly, give them the hope they need to keep going when we come back we return to DARPA and how to ensure that we design new military technologies with worst case scenarios top of mind
2: snag a job is where america goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over six million active hourly workers
0: Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iheart. That's L E E S A dot com slash iheart.
3: One of the central contentions of sleepwalkers is that our creations reflect us. And knowing this, we need to be deliberate about how we tell them to behave. We talked in episode three of this series, The Watchmen, about automation bias. The very human habit of treating the output of computers as infallible, even while ignoring the inputs that we've given them. And recognizing this, Arthi made it a central tenet of her tenure at DARPA to argue that technology is not inevitable.
7: There's a tendency uh, to give the active role to the technology. It's what the AI will do to us. I want to keep bringing us back to the fact that these technologies are our creations. They're built by human beings. We have this enormous privilege that we get to work on the powerful technologies that can shape the progress of our societies. That privilege comes with a responsibility to ask, what could possibly go wrong?
3: What could possibly go wrong? It's a legitimate question, but there's also a reason it's become a meme it's notoriously hard to answer. This is especially true in times of war, when new technologies are often rushed into action without being fully understood. Here's Paul Shari again.
4: World War I is a a wonderful, a terrible um, example of what can happen when we see new technologies change warfare in ways that policymakers were not prepared for. You know, the Industrial Revolution brought not just, you know, locomotives, but also, um, you know, cars, tanks, airplanes, machine guns, that then were used to industrialize warfare in a totally new way that dramatically changed the scale and the speed of killing that was possible. The Gatling gun, people still had to crank the gun, but then it automated the process of loading and firing bullets.
3: We began this episode talking about the new dangers posed by automated weapons. Well, the Gatling gun was actually one of the world's first. And as Paul told us, its invention had a ripple effect that its inventor could not have foreseen.
4: The inventor, Richard Gatling, did this to save lives. He was looking at um, people coming back uh, wounded and killed from the American Civil War. He wanted to build a machine that could reduce the number of soldiers that were needed on the battlefield as a way to save lives and that sounds like you know a very well-meaning idea and in practice um as the gatling gun evolved into the machine gun in world war one we saw a scale of killing that was just unprecedented and in a whole a whole generation of european um men wiped out on those battlefields and so i think it's it's an important cautionary tale for our ability to predict how this technology will be used
3: the name of this podcast sleepwalkers is borrowed from a book called the sleepwalkers how europe went to war in 1914 written by the historian christopher clark and one of the big questions i've been asking is are we at a moment like we were on the eve of world war one when we haven't fully understood the implications of our new technology i asked richard danzig the former navy secretary about the parallels
6: there is an analogy from world war one european military leaders developed mobilization plans to increase their own capabilities in the event of an attack. And they underestimated the degree to which that created rigidities and interactions, so that in the end, the railroad timetables generated a war that perhaps no one intended to be engaged in. People think that they're driving the cart, uh, and in reality, the Horses of technology are frequently pulling us in directions that we don't anticipate and can't control.
3: So, are we better placed now to understand the implications of AI and new technology for global conflict than Europe was in 1914?
6: I don't believe our understanding of AI is greater than their understanding at that point. We will make these mistakes too. I cannot estimate their significance or their frequency, but I'm rather confident we will lose control, that we will make mistakes of that kind and cause unintended consequences. So to me, the interesting question is not, can I predict their frequency? The interesting question is, what can I do in advance if I recognize that? So one of them is well represented by the DARPA Safe Chain project, Uh, That government agency is saying, if people edit genes, but it turns out they escape into the environment and proliferate, how do we program them to begin with so that we can shut them off?
3: When it's so difficult to predict how new technologies will be used and misused, it's hugely important that we build precautions while they're still being researched and developed is difficult, but we have to do our best to anticipate the future dangers of a technology long before potential deployment on the battlefield. Thankfully, that philosophy governed Arthi Prabhakar's work at DARPA.
7: What we developed was a way of Grappling with the ethical implications of these technologies, it started by being open with ourselves, not just about our hopes for the technology, but also our fears and looking each other in the eye and saying, here's what we think really is possible, but also here's what could really go wrong.
3: Were there any specific programs that you were tempted by as a technologist, but in the end you had to kill because they didn't meet your ethical standards?
7: I don't really have anything to say about that. The answer is yes, but I can't give you an example because it was classified.
3: (laughs) Kara, we've talked about the design phase and thinking from R&D onwards about making new weapons systems safe. But it doesn't always work out that way.
5: Yeah, the genie does have a habit of getting out of the bottle. Um, We've talked about dual use before. Even seemingly benign technologies can be hugely destructive. The one that blows my mind is the story of Arthur Galston, who was a plant biologist who discovered while he was a graduate student this compound that helps soybeans flower faster. He also learned that if this compound were applied in excess, that it would cause the plant to shed its leaves. And when Galston discovered this defoliant effect, that's what was abused by biological warfare scientists who would then go on to develop Agent Orange.
3: I just got back from a trip to Vietnam, actually, where the effects of Agent Orange are still being felt. It's actually a gene toxin which causes deformities through the generation. So, that is a truly horrific one, Kara. Mm. And it makes us think it wasn't those chemists who were releasing Agent Orange over Vietnam, it was the US military. So, The idea that the person who creates the technology gets to control what happens to it is simply not the case. And so we need to move forward with the assumption that AI weapons will leave the laboratory and exist in the world. And the central question is, how helpful is it to have a human in the loop? Well, according to Richard Danzig, humans are of increasingly limited utility.
6: I think uh, there there are circumstances where human control is useful, but uh, I don't think that's the most useful approach. And The reason for that is because the power is in the machine. So many decisions that we care about are made at extraordinarily high speed, and there just isn't time for the humans to assimilate them and make correct judgments. Even the president declaring or not nuclear war and responding might have 15 minutes to make a judgment.
3: In other words, the whole idea of a human in the loop, making the final call, is something of an illusion. At the very least, it relies on us making wise decisions at lightning speed and under pressure. And there's another problem. All of the information people like the president use to make decisions has already been filtered through several computer systems. So when the president reviews information to make a tactical choice, he or she is already relying on automation
6: he's extraordinarily dependent on what the machines are telling him uh what the sensors are interpreted to him and what the algorithms say the trajectories of missiles that have been launched so realistically he's on the cart being pulled by the horses of these technologies um If that's true for the president, think what it's like for the person who's a sergeant in the field manning a Patriot missile battalion um, and it shows incoming missiles, he has seconds or at best minutes to respond and has to make decisions.
3: We know how fallible we are as decision makers, and we know how dependent we already are on computer systems to guide our decisions. So what can we do to prevent ourselves from stumbling into a conflict that no one wants?
6: I think we need to recognize that science is now diffused around the globe. We need a common kind of understanding about how to reduce these risks. And then we need some joint planning for the contingency that these do escape. What do we do if a newly engineered genetic system gets out there into the wild? Well, that's not just a problem for the Chinese if it happens to happen in China. Technology spreads,
3: it gets modified, copied, and hacked. And once something is out of the lab, it's anyone's guess as to what happens. And countries are slowly trying to establish standards for AI. But as Paul Shari argues, creating a global framework governing AI in warfare is a tall order.
4: It's a very hard area to think about how do we mitigate that risk because countries are not going to talk about the things that they're doing in cyberspace and the financial sector. They've installed things like circuit breakers that would take stocks offline if the price moves too quickly. Well, there's no referee to call time out in warfare. So if we're going to manage those risks in the military space, those have to be circuit breakers, uh, if you will, that people build into our own weapon systems, limits on them, ways to interject human control, to maintain control if things begin to move in unexpected ways. And it's worth acknowledging really up front that there's a trade-off there, that every time that a military puts guardrails on a weapon system or inserts a human in the loop as a check, that's potentially slowing down the effectiveness of their weapon. And there's a risk that they're going to be afraid that an adversary might not do that and might get an edge on them. And that dynamic is really the crux of the problem here. It's hard to get to a place where countries um, trust each other enough to engage in mutual restraint. But
3: we may not have a choice. Up until now, our defense policy has been based on the assumption of technical superiority. And as Arthi argues, we can no longer rely on that.
7: You have a model that is based on owning all the technology and knowing that no one else can have access to it for two or three decades. And today, those assumptions simply don't hold. We are not the only people who can innovate right now.
3: The history of new technology and warfare is, frankly, disturbing. When we create new weapons, we tend to use them. We've talked about the atomic bomb in Japan and about poisonous gas in World War I, and even about the Gatling gun one of the world's first automated weapons. Designed to reduce the number of combatants required to wage war, it decimated an entire generation in Europe. We haven't yet seen what happens when AI weapon systems begin to interact with one another. But chances are, we will in our lifetime. So, the temptation in all of this can be to desperately try to hit pause on new technology. But Arthi argues that would be the wrong approach.
7: Historically, we are drawn forward by the enormous potential that these technologies can enhance our lives. And at the same time, we're, we're repelled by the consequences that we understand could be fundamentally wrong. So I think that's the tension. But in aggregate and over time, I do think that technology has lifted us up, it has advanced us. You know, when you play the parlor game of asking your friends what period in history they would rather live in, I might want to visit, but there's no other time in history I want to live in. And I think the future is going to be fraught with problems and is still going to be a better place than the one that we're in.
3: It's true that technology has made so many parts of our lives easier, healthier and safer. And it's also true that the technology we create has the potential to be ever more destructive. We've talked about dual use in this episode, and as a matter of fact, many DARPA programs have found their way into revolutionizing medicine. In the next episode, we look at some of the incredible applications of AI in the world of healthcare, from accurately predicting time of death to decoding the human genome. I'm Osvaloshin. See you next time. Sleepwalkers is a production of iHeartRadio and Unusual Productions. For the latest AI news, live interviews, and behind-the-scenes footage, find us on Instagram at sleepwalkerspodcast or at sleepwalkerspodcast.com. Sleepwalkers is hosted by me, Osvaloshin.
5: And co-hosted by me, Kara Price.
3: We're produced by Julian Weller, with help from Jacopo Penzo and Taylor Chicoin. Mixing by Tristan McNeil and Julian Weller. Our story editor is Matthew Riddle. Recording assistance this episode from Chris Hambrick and Jackson Bierfeld. Sleepwalkers is executive produced by me, Osvaloshin, and Mangesh Hatikada. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
9: perfect home sweet home
1: hey there parents and teachers are you tired of feeling like every day is a battle of wills with your kids